This is The Guardian. Today, as the England team prepares to play Germany in this weekend's final at Wembley, we ask what will be the legacy of Euro 2022 for women's football? electric at Bramall Lane. Yeah, I've been to quite a few big games with big crowds, but I've never really felt an atmosphere quite like that. If you're watching England's semi-final match against Sweden on Tuesday night, you'll understand what Susie Rack is describing. The stadium in Sheffield packed with tens of thousands of fans chanting, it's coming home. Young girls waving banners emblazoned with the names of their team heroes, bright, bronze, Kirby, Mead. Across the country, more than nine million of us joined in, at pubs and outdoor venues and in our homes. You know, for any England fan watching half an hour into the game, you were thinking that the final was going to be a step too far and we weren't going to get there. You know, Sweden were just so utterly dominant. And then you've got this moment of Beth Mead's goal in the 34th or 35th minute where it just changes the game. And that was a real moment. I mean, it just completely transformed everything. At 48 minutes in, Lucy Bronze scores a second. Then Alessia Russo, with an audacious backheel, nutmegs the Swedish keeper. That completely catches everyone out including the goalkeeper, goes through her legs and rolls into the far corner. And it was just a real moment, like just to have, she, you know, she's so young. And it was just, it just screamed of like sort of arrogant confidence. With three minutes of the game left to go, Fran Kirby scores a fourth. And it was just wonderful. On Sunday, England will face Germany at Wembley. It will be their first major tournament final since 2009. And whether they win or lose, the Lionesses have inspired a generation of girls to see that football is their game too, after decades of being told it wasn't. Absolutely mint. Like, we've honestly just been sat there shaking. When they all scored them goals, I was like, collapsing on the floor. Leah Williamson, Beth Mead, Nikita Paris, um, all this talent in the England squad. Uh, it's been really good to watch. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the triumph of Euro 2022. And where does women's football go from here? Susie Rack, throughout this tournament, I've been listening to you co-hosting The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly podcast and reading your coverage of the Euro 2022 games. And I think for me and probably for a lot of people, you've helped me understand and get really excited about this tournament. You were at the stadium in Sheffield on Tuesday night when England defeated Sweden 4-0. How did that feel? 
there's nothing quite like the sort of collective joy of watching um, a team like England do so well after having followed their journey both as a journalist and as a fan for a very long time it was really really quite incredible. And England really have had such an incredible tournament. They breezed through the group stages and then knocked out some tough teams. For people who haven't been following every game, can you give us just a quick rundown of how it's been going for them? So the first game was England v Austria at Old Trafford. There was a lot of expectation and it was a 1-0 win, Beth Mead uh, goal. Quite a lot of people were disappointed with that, but I think it was more that people had underestimated Austria because Austria are a really good team. Then you've got the second game against Norway in Brighton. We were sitting next to all the families and players and everyone was just going, what, what are we witnessing? What is going on? And they go on to win 8-0. Record-breaking, history-making, barnstorming performance from England. They have arrived at Euro 2022. Um, and it was just an utterly sort of surreal moment because they were the threat of the group. And then you had a 5-0 defeat of Northern Ireland. In sport, the Lionesses are through to the quarterfinals of the Women's Euros. England thrashed Northern Ireland 5-0 in their final Group A match, giving them three successive wins without conceding a single goal. So there's been a real swagger and confidence about the side. A lot of that swagger and confidence is being put down to the coach, Serena Wiegmann. She's had so much praise for her strategy, her squad lineup. I'm always interested in how people do things. When people win, it's, it looks like it's easy, but never take it for granted. It's not easy. And she's only been in the job for less than a year. How has she developed her skills? What's her background? So she's um, an extraordinarily experienced and talented manager. She was a fantastic player, a real brilliant attacking, creative midfielder for the Dutch women's national team. She was the first player in the Dutch women's national team to reach 100 caps. She went to the US for a year. And I came in kind of a little bit of a football paradise with training every day, having great facilities at that time already with the best players I could imagine. So when I went home, I thought, well, if we could ever get this environment in the Netherlands, then I would be a happy person. And she learned a lot when she was in the States. You know, they've got a very different attitude towards women's football in that men's football isn't that big. And while the USA has some catching up to do when it comes to the men's game, in women's soccer, they're equal to the best in Europe and could soon be at the very... They've got Title IX in the US, which means that it's part of the Civil Rights Act and it means all government-funded institutions aren't allowed to discriminate on the basis of gender or sex or race. So they've got a hugely developed pathway system over there. And she saw that and then came back to the Netherlands wanting to build it and grow it and have those opportunities there for women in the country that she grew up in. And while she was a professional player, she was working as a PE teacher, right? And then became a coach after that. Exactly, yeah. So she was working as a PE teacher. And so then she goes on to be assistant coach for the Netherlands Women's National Team. And then she gets the Netherlands job, top job, end of 2016, start of 2017, and leads the Netherlands to a home Euros final that they win in 2017. The Netherlands champions. A seesaw final has seen them hit four past Denmark and become the new queens of Europe. And the opportunity to come to England was a really, really good one for her because England is the most invested in women's national team in Europe. 
It's been joyful to see this tournament happening in stadiums across England, to see fans, their children and adults just getting so excited about these games. And 9.3 million people watched the semi-final on Tuesday on BBC One. How much difference has it made for these games to be shown on free-to-air TV? I think it's really hard to to overstate the impact of having it on BBC and exactly what that does for the game. There's, there's nothing quite like putting your biggest and best product on the biggest and best stage. We're off to Wembley! Come on! But do you know what, Gabby, about this team? What he was saying there as well. It's gonna, like, undoubtedly going to impact the growth of the game moving forward as well. I mean, the BBC and Sky Sports shared broadcast rights deal for the Women's Super League has really been a game changer. Sky Sports has announced a groundbreaking three-year deal with the FA to show the Women's Super League from September 2021. Um, and that's been hugely important to the growth of the Women's Super League over the last season. And it's sort of staggering the numbers that we're seeing. I think the final is going to be record-breaking in terms of viewing figures for an England women's football match. Susie, to understand what a huge moment this is for women's football, we need to look back a little bit at its history. Of course, women have been playing football for a long, long time, but it doesn't seem like they've always been welcome in the professional game. The history of women's football is as old as the history of men's football, essentially. You reach a point in the early 1900s where you've got the more formalistic version emerging and then you've got a huge, huge boom of the game during the First World War and in the interwar years as the men who go off to fight in the war vacate the sort of workplaces and factories and women fill those spots. And that was a real attitude change. Women's football exploded uh, in the absence of men's football during that time. And in 1920, 53,000 people attended Dick Kerr Ladies v St Helens at Everton's Goodison Park. Uh, I think there was another 16,000, it's rumoured, that that were outside and couldn't get tickets to get in as well. So a huge, huge audience. We played a match at Everton against St Helens ladies in front of 53,000 spectators. Gate receipts, £3,115. And then the following year, literally the following year in 1921, the FA banned women's football from all football grounds that had any affiliation to them so they were basically forced from these huge stadiums into parks and rugby league grounds that were significantly smaller than that and things like that and that essentially killed the game. So it was flourishing people wanted to go and see it women wanted to play it why did the football association ban it? The FA did not like that. They didn't have control um, and they didn't like that the huge swathes of teams of women were raising the equivalent of some millions of pounds in today's money for, for charities and political causes that they weren't supportive of and had no control over. So it came down to money. It wasn't just a case of, of thinking, oh, dainty ladies shouldn't be playing this game. It was totally a bit of both. That first element of saying that the game is unsuitable for women to play, of pulling out a load of doctors who would say that, oh, you know, a woman's womb would fall out if they played football. Wow. It, you know, it's a completely inappropriate thing for a woman's physique to be doing. It, basically that, yeah, women are incapable of playing football and their bodies can't handle it. When did the FA start to shift its stance? So in the late 60s, the FA began to shift its stance on uh, women's football 
and whether it should be allowed to be played or not. The men who coach these girls risk suspension from their own clubs if the FA hears about them dallying with ladies' football teams. The Cunard team, who were tearfully toppled today, blamed their loss of form on the absence of their coach. There was a lot of pressure coming from UEFA at the time and that was very much with a view to bringing it in-house and not letting this growing beast develop too far beyond its remit before they you know, can't control it. So the FA had to respond to that pressure and in 1970 they finally lifted the ban and then it wasn't until much later that they took over the running of women's football formally from the unofficial body, the Women's Football Association that had been set up. That was in 93. Even as close as 2016, 2017, there was a turning point in the leadership of the FA to say, we are going to treat this really, really seriously, invest in it properly and really build it and make amends for the 50-year the ban. That's really actually quite a recent phenomenon. What have been some of the key moments since sort of 2016, 2017 in terms of the professionalisation of the game that have brought us to this point? Yeah, so in in 2017, the FA launched the Game Plan for Growth, which was uh, launched at Wembley. And that strategy had a huge list of commitments. I mean, really, it's been quite remarkable that pretty much every single benchmark they set for themselves in that game plan for growth in 2017 um, has been hit. What are those changes then? The first thing is that we have a changing room. I remember when we first joined, we put things on the side of the pitch. You know, you had your or your kit that you were going to get changed into. Even little things that you get your kit washed. You know, mm-hmm. before I had two T-shirts and you're going home and you're putting a wash in every day and then we got lockers and I was even more excited you know you know I've got a lot of criticism of the FA for a number of things uh, that they've done with women's football and the way they've professionalized and the impact of professionalizing the league at really quite short notice which meant that you know some teams sort of fell by the wayside that couldn't keep up with the investment required to do that and there's problems there but at the same time in terms of England the plan has been pretty perfect. They've really hit every button and reached a major tournament final in the time frame that they set, which is arguably a great success. To understand whether that progress is being felt at a grassroots level, we got in touch with a young player who's part of Football Beyond Borders, which is an initiative to get people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the game. My name is Shahad. I am 18 years old. I have been working part-time with Football Beyond Borders since I was 16 years old. What's it been like then watching the Lionesses in the Euros this year? been probably one of the best moments in my life, especially um, <laughs> I went to the quarterfinal like last week in Brighton. The atmosphere when like we had a goal back one one and went to extra time. Like the support from the fans, we were singing the whole way like and you could see Leah Williamson making us cheer louder by using her hand. It's like they really appreciate the support in a sense and it really helps them. So being in that like, my first proper big Euros game and it's in my country and it's happening right in front of me is probably like the best moment in my life to be honest how do you go about supporting them we would always be chanting so that would be one thing standing up trying to get 
like more people involved, more people hyped. Because if the energy is good through the crowd, it will pass on to the players and they'll see us still supporting and they'll still keep going. What's the most important chant that we need to know? <laughs> Probably is Beth needs on fire, your defence is terrified. Beth needs on fire, your defence is terrified. Everyone, everyone does that. And it's only like two lines, so everyone kind of remembers it. Okay, that's definitely easy enough for me. And tell me about your route into football then. Can you remember when you first started getting into football? When I was quite young, around, let's say, five or six, my uncle, we used to watch football matches together and I remember wearing one of his old Man United shirts. But the first time I would say I was playing it and like really understanding it was in primary school when there was a tryout for the football team. I was like 10 years old. And there was mainly boys and there was probably like two of us girls. That's cool. So you were trying out to be on a mixed team at the start. How did it feel to make it onto that, to be a girl on that team? It was like an eye-opener at such a young age to see that it's all full of boys, realistically. You're seeing that in a way you don't fit in. As you've gone through from age 10 and like through your teenage years what have been some of the obstacles to you getting involved in football i can't say i know a muslim woman footballer who does or doesn't wear the headscarf like not having a role model really was a proper challenge for me because it made me kind of accept what other people were saying about me not being able to become it because i was like they are right there's no one like me playing football so how would I go about it? I have no one to look up to. Do you ever meet people where there's like a feeling from their families of like, oh, girls shouldn't be playing football? I've heard a lot of people say um, that, yeah, just girls shouldn't play. It's not it's not a girl's thing, you know what I mean? It's just it's for the boys, which obviously when I hear that, I'm just like, yeah, at that moment, I wouldn't take it in and just, yeah, whatever. Someone's just saying another stereotypical opinion. But then when you deep it afterwards, you're like, people really think this way. Um, if they're being told that from a young age, they're going to give up automatically because they might not be strong enough to really believe in themselves and carry on. What are your dreams with football? My dream right now is probably to become a sports journalist slash presenter. I want to stay involved with football for the rest of my life, whether that's like journalism presenting or even coaching on the side, anything football-related. Coming up, what's the FA doing to help more women and girls get into football? Susie, it's really important that major news outlets are reporting prominently on women's football, isn't it? Because surely that's the only way that the audiences are going to grow for it, that sponsors are going to get involved and that the game overall is going to get bigger. Yeah, 100%. The men's great game did not just grow to the beast it has become organically by itself. You know, the, the press played a very important role in the growth of men's football. It's a very reciprocal relationship. You know, the bigger the game gets, the more people want the press coverage. So it's beneficial for the press. And the bigger the press coverage, the bigger the game grows. So it's beneficial for the game. And yeah, it's fantastic because, you know, you look back to before the 2019 World Cup and I'd say within the six months before the 2019 World Cup, you had the first like 
women's football writers starting to be full-time at various outlets. There was Katie Wyatt at The Telegraph, there was myself at The Guardian, um, and there were a couple of others. And then, you know, you, you fast forward to now, and pretty much every major outlet has a full-time women's football writer, at least one. And the BBC's got its top pundits on there. You've got Ian Wright, you've got Gabby Logan, you've got Alex Scott. So to to see those faces and to hear that analysis being put into this game all makes a big difference as well. She's been brilliant, Millie Bright, in this tournament up to this point. It's like broadcasting from a nightclub. The atmosphere in here is absolutely electric. I mean, Ian Wright is just the most wonderful advocate for women's football. He he so, so genuinely cares. Whatever happens in the final now, if we're not, if we if, if if girls are not allowed to play football just like the boys can in their PE after this tournament, then what we're we doing? They've got we've got to make sure that they are able to play and get the opportunity to do this because this is gonna inspire a lot of people. But if there's no legacy to this, like what we saw with the Olympics, if there's no legacy after this, then what are we doing? Because girls should be able to play because this is as proud as I've ever felt of any England side. And there's nothing quite like having such a a fantastic male ally and passionate advocate for the game who has such a fantastic reputation in the men's game as well. And then, you know, I mean, Alex Scott's career is a testament to the growth of the game in and of itself. You know what, Gabby? It's hard for me not to get emotional right now <laughs> because the amount of investment and everything that has gone into the women's game is for a moment. For this team to get to Wembley, they're creating something special. They deserve absolutely every accolade that is coming their way. Susie, you've written about some of the hostile reactions you've had for covering this game. What kinds of things have people been saying? When I first started writing the column, um, the weekly column for the Guardian, the comments were open on articles and you just got so many sort of, you know, no one cares. Um, and I get a lot of that. I, you know, I get people DMing me on Twitter because uh, I like to keep my DMs open so that, you know, I can actually engage with people that want to engage with me on stories and things. But, you know, slagging off the game, slagging off me, telling me to get back in the kitchen. If I dare have an opinion on anything men's football related, I always get a a huge amount of abuse. Um, That's when it's possibly the worst. But, you know, there's the great thing about football is it's so powerful that it has like um, the power to push the progressive ideas against sexism and misogyny and racism and things like that. Um, because it wields such influence. And that's what's great about working in the game is that, you know, you can see attitudes changing. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for giving the women's football good coverage and everyone at talk sports finally getting the recognition it deserves. Yeah, it deserves it. That's why. There's absolutely brilliant atmosphere tonight. I was at the men's Euros final and the atmosphere tonight matched that easily. It was fantastic. What an atmosphere, what a performance. I've got two daughters to play football, nine and 11, and just watching uh, women's football get the recognition it deserves. For a teenage girl watching these games today, I wonder what the scope is for them to consider making football their career. What's access like to this game at a grassroots level? The FA have uh, the ambition of having football available to girls in every single primary school in the country. Um, and they're not there yet. They're not 100%, but they're they're like getting there. And this tournament, win or lose, is going to have a huge impact on the desire of schools to be able to take up 
um, girls football and really encourage it and grow it. Obviously, there can always be more. And I would say that there should be a lot more investment from clubs into uh, their, you know, girls academies. There's this incredible network of boys teams run by clubs. Further investment in that and further support for um, girls teams and in coaching as well for of girls teams is critical. Shahad told me that she's never seen a player that she feels she could really identify with. You know, she's a young Muslim woman. And that is a problem. If at the grassroots level, girls are being put off by the lack of diversity that they see at a professional level, why do you think that is the case with the women's game? It's hugely problematic. I mean, you look at this Euros and the entire starting 11 of the England women's national team is white, which is not a great look. When they all take a knee at the start of the game, that's extremely important. It's right that they do it. But it does make me a little bit uncomfortable that there's not a single black player or a player from another minority ethnic background in that starting 11. And it's something that's got worse. You know, you look back to England teams of the past, you know, you had Hope Powell, you had Rachel Yankee, Enia Luco, Leanne Sanderson, Anita Asante, you know, real, you know, like, iconic black female footballers that, you know, you don't really have in this England women's team today. And, you know, a big part of that is the professionalism in the game has actually impacted that for the worst because it's meant that recruitment and scouting networks and sessions run for girls has moved sort of from inner cities and estates and into the suburbs where some of the, you know, more professional training grounds of teams are and things like that. And that changes the the, the makeup of the people going there because it's only the more well-off players that can afford to drive their kids three times a week to training or can get the time off work or don't have to work second jobs. Um, there's not the number of grassroots teams and tournaments uh, available as there are on, on the men's side where you get this much, much bigger player pool and it much, much more accessible and you can find somewhere very, very local. So what's the FA doing to sort that out then? The FA, they're doing a number of things to sort that out. Um, they've set up a talent ID scheme where people can literally just contact the FA if they've seen a player that's very, very good and the FA will get in touch with that player, will scout them, will design a plan to help them find a local team that is suitable for them or if they are able and willing to travel, will arrange for that. And I think they've identified a couple of thousand girls through that scheme in the past year. How recent has it been that players in England have been able to play this game, to play football full time and not have to work second jobs? In terms of England internationals, central contracts, which are wages paid to England internationals, were brought in in 2009. So the top England players were given a salary of £30,000 a year by the FA and the, the ones further down the pecking order were on 15000 a year from the FA in addition to any money they got from their clubs. But at that time was you know pretty amateur but that's you know obviously significantly improved since then and grown and grown and but it's only really sort of in the last between five and ten years possibly even slightly less that you're starting to see players come through the system into the senior women's team that have never had to work in addition to playing what kinds of salaries could these top level footballers be commanding now 
so the salaries in the Women's Super League vary so, so, so massively from, you know, the players at the very, very, very top end of the spectrum, sort of on three or four hundred grand a year, possibly even slightly more now with some of the new contracts that have been signed lately. Um, but at the, at the bottom end of the league, you're sort of going down to 20 to 30 grand. So, you know, the, the disparity between the top and the bottom, the have and have nots of the league is huge. And this is about fairness and parity with the men's game on an individual level, but it's also about developing women's football overall. What are some of the barriers at the moment to the game getting more professionalised and getting more popular? It's all money, really. (laughs) Greater regulation from the government on um, investment in sport um, at at school level, at college level, at university level could be a bit of a game changer. More money coming in through increased broadcast rights deals when they're up for renewal, through increased sponsorship deals, all of that kind of stuff. It's all money and investment um, and that's what it needs. And it needs women to be paid uh, enough to live on, enough to be able to afford to have kids on and take time out from, enough for them to be able to afford to live in what is quite a precarious industry. So still a lot to do. But do you think right now we're living through a transformational moment in women's football? I think it could be. It's very much a point at which, uh, you know, we're sort of at a crossroads and the game can go either way. It it depends on how it's looked after and how it's, how it's treated. Um, and the FA have a lot of choices about the future of the women's game of how it's governed, of who runs it, because they're considering selling off the Women's Super League and having it run independently. But there's also been talk of the Premier League taking over it or private finance interested in taking over the league. And, you know, so there's a real, like, ideological question to be answered about where women's football should go and what it should look like and how similar or different to the men's game it should be. And those are real important questions that will affect the future of the women's game and its success or failure, in my opinion. And so, yes, transformational in that these record crowds and attendances and viewing figures and uh, and participation levels, um, access in schools are, are all game-changing things. They're all transformatory, but structurally and in terms of professionalism, there's like big, big question marks there. Susie, I couldn't let you go without asking... What's going to happen in the final on Sunday? <laughs> I wish I had a crystal ball. And it's going to be really tough. The idea of you know an England team playing Germany in a major tournament final at Wembley is not a nice one for an England fan, I'm sure. Um, but England are just so good at the moment. It, it's hard to look past them not being able to get through any kind of challenge thrown at them at the moment. I mean, it, it totally depends on how physical Germany are, how much they can stop the midfield free of Kirby, Stanway and and Kira Walsh from playing and things like that. My heart says England will do it. My head sort of says it as well. What would it mean for England to win? I struggle to put into words um, how impactful them winning the Euros would be because I I just think it would be so huge and so transformatory that it's hard to even guess at. You know, the first senior national team to win a major tournament since 1966. I mean, it, it's just a, a game changer. If England win, I just, yeah, it's, it's just impossible to articulate how, how significant that will be. 
Susie, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me on. That was Susie Rack. Thank you to her and to Shahad. For in-depth coverage of this weekend's game, you're going to want to listen to The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Susie and the rest of the team will have an episode for you today and another on Sunday after the match. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams, Nishal Shvaga Patel and Ivor Manley. I hope you have a lovely weekend. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.